This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. The self-help industry generates a billion dollars a year. Just think about all the slogans and messages and things that you see on T-shirts and coffee mugs and on the media every day and in conversations with your family and your friends. It's everywhere. But do all those books and tapes and weekend seminars really help anybody? Why do some people swear by the power of positive thinking while others say it's just a bunch of garbage? Those are just a few of the questions that my guest for this part of today's show, Jessica Lamb Shapiro, wrote about in her book, Promised Land. Jessica, whose father has written a number of self-help books, decided that she really wanted to look into what's really going on in the self-help industry. And in the name of research, she took a class on how to find a husband. She walked on hot coals and ate breakfast with more than 100 grieving children. She tried to cure herself of a debilitating fear of flying. She helped a friend make a vision board, and she even attended a conference on how to write best-selling self-help books. (laughs) But Jessica had a personal interest in this as well, because her mother had died when she was very young. And so the more she delved into the history and the practice of the self-help industry, the harder it became to convince herself that all this research was just academic. Of all of that research, she says, the hardest thing was talking to her father about her mother. So if you or anybody you know has ever turned to the self-help section in a bookstore or online, you're not going to want to miss this interview. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Well, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. As an alternative to recycling? Yeah, an alternative. So we, like, don't have to do it. Recycling. There are lots of planets. Finding one is just a matter of time. Many people say that recycling is pretty simple and convenient. A matter of keeping select items out of the trash. A lot simpler than finding a new planet, Tommy. Come on, there's a bunch of planets out there. Would you recycle on this new planet, Tommy? Or just use it up and throw it away too? I I really don't have a clue. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy. Unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jessica Lamb Shapiro, who's the author of Promise Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Promise is without a D at the end, just so you know. So how did you happen to decide to immerse yourself in self-help? I I think that that would, uh, it just seems like it would be suicide-inducing, practically, (laughs) to have as much of it as you had, you dealt with, which was purely voluntary. But what what brought you there? First, you have to know that I kind of grew up with it because my dad is a self-help writer. So even though I wasn't reading self-help books, he was writing books, and there were other, I'm okay, you're okay was around. Oh, yeah. And uh, we also had all these cooperative board games. You know, nobody wins unless everybody wins. They're really boring. So I was kind of um, immersed in this self-help culture from birth, basically. And in a way, I found it really uninteresting because of that. Um, and then about 10 years ago, my dad 
uh, found out that there was a conference being held by the guy who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. And he decided that maybe Mark Victor Hansen, who was leading the workshop, had some secrets that he didn't have about being a self-help writer. And so he decided to go. And I just thought it would be a funny thing to go with. Um, I didn't really see that it would end up being this whole book. But so you got past the chicken soup part of it, though. Yeah. So once I went to the chicken soup part, um, I started to get interested because I think the thing that most interested me was how emotional the people were. Um, there were a lot of adults crying, uh, doing strange things like drawing smiley faces on each other's index fingers. And so I felt Ooh. that something powerful was happening if it was making adults cry and do really strange things. And that's kind of what got me interested. Do you define things like est as self-help, or is that kind of more culty? Um, you know, I cast a really wide net, and there is a definition problem because self-help books even are not really self-help. There's an old George Carlin joke that goes, you know, if you buy it in a bookstore, it's not self-help, it's just help. Um, but I try to just include as much as possible, and that's why I, in the subtitle, call it self-help culture, uh, because I'm interested in the way that people who don't even read self-help books or know what EST is are still affected by the ethos of self-help in the culture. Hmm. Yeah, I had a couple brushes with this sort of stuff when I was younger. My parents, sort of a, a ridiculous story in a way, but it's kind of revealing of my parents that, <laughs> that they, they were members of a club, a health club in, in Oakland, California, called the Athens Athletic Club, and we used to go swimming and summer camps, sports camps and things there. And then the Athens Athletic Club sold the building, and my parents decided that they wanted to keep going to that club, so they joined the group that owned the building, and the, gr the group happened to be Synanon, which has gone down in history as being one of the most <laughs> colossally horrible uh, kinds of things. But it was very much a self-help kind of thing, and there were all these encounter groups and stuff like that that were just bizarre um, and then they later on they they got into not est it was called life spring, um, which was another kind of esty sort of a thing and mm -hmm. and I, I don't know if it was maybe because I was young and and felt dragged to these things but they always kind of made me cringe that there just seemed to be something remarkably unsincere about a lot of the people who were in these things. Did you come across that? Well. To me, it wasn't so much that they were insincere that made me uncomfortable. It was a kind of desperation, you know, that obviously in order to do est, I know very little about it except that I know you weren't allowed to go to the bathroom, which to me sounds really horrible. Yeah. Um, so in order to subject yourself to something like that and screaming and whatever sorts of weird therapies, there has to be something that you're really desperate for and that you really want. Um, and so I don't... You know, to me, that's a kind of sincerity. Uh, maybe you meant the sincerity of the people teaching the classes? Yeah, I, a little bit of both. I mean, there there were people who would have these remarkable, incredible, deep, emotional breakthroughs mm -hmm. five minutes into you know, into <laughs> into something. You think, well, how, how did that happen? We haven't even met anybody, and you're already crying, and life is better. Uh, I don't yeah, know, maybe I'm too much of a cynic. I think it's a kind of mass hysteria. You know, maybe being with a group of people can make you really emotional very quickly. Um, I have been in situations like that as well, and it is very strange, especially if you're not feeling it, that somebody might just start crying. Um, but, you know, it's hard to fake cry, so if something is going on, I'm just not always sure exactly what it is. 
Yeah. So I, I want to talk about some of the specifics here, but overall, what was your the feeling when you finished researching the book and all the travels that you did? Do you think it's a, a that it does more harm than good or good than harm as That's as an overall movement? Um, I think it's just such a vast world that it's really impossible to say. Um, there are definitely things out there that are doing harm. Um, and there are also books and support groups out there that are doing good. And so it's hard to say, you know, I, I couldn't really tally up how many there are maybe, and make a pie chart and say, like, okay, it's 51% good and 49% bad. Um, well, I guess there's going to be believers of any kind. So something that may not work for you is could be absolutely life-altering in a positive way for somebody else. I exactly, mean, I guess yeah. it is. it is hard to... Hard to say that. What was one that, in, just in your estimation, was the most helpful to people or, or perhaps meant the, meant the most to you? Um, one of the things that meant the most to me was a book that I read about grieving called Motherless Daughters. And oh, yeah. ironically, it was the book that I kind of hated the most before I started reading it. I just hated the title. I hated the cover. It made me angry. <laughs> it made me really <laughs> anxious. And I had it for about three months before I even started reading it. I would just sort of glare at it every once in a while. Um, and I'm not sure there was just something about it that I didn't like. Um, you know, it seemed overly sentimental and a little cliched to me. And this is even before I even opened the book. So <laughs> once I started reading it, yeah. all of a sudden I was really identifying with some of the things that the author was saying because I had lost my mother at a very young age and she was, saying that she had had thoughts or gone through feelings that I had thought and felt. And then all of a sudden I was like, this is an amazing book. I love this book. <laughs> I feel so understood. Everything makes sense now. Um, and there was just a lot of information in there that I found really helpful. Um, so it, it was really funny, the sort of the arc of the relationship that I had with that book where I hated it so much and then I really loved it. <laughs> Would you consider that a self-help book, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Huh. That's interesting. I, I, I interviewed the author. It never occurred to me that that was a self-help book. I guess maybe not being a motherless daughter, maybe that was part of it. It didn't obviously speak to me in the same way. I was looking at it kind of as a as a research thing and as good advice and helping people. Learn. Oh, I guess maybe that's the definition yeah, of self-help. I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they also have a workbook, which is much more clearly a self-help book. Um, where it sort of asks you questions, and then you write down your answers, and it's sort of journaling and that sort of thing. Okay. All right, so let's take the other side of that then. So what was the one that was the most meaningless? I really hated The Secret. I hated that before I read it, and I hated it after I read it. Of the Law of Attraction? The Law of Attraction. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for one thing, the title annoyed me, because The Law of Attraction has been around for about 100 years, and so I kind of resented being told that it was a secret when, according to the research I had done, it was definitely not a secret. You know, people have been talking <laughs> about this for so long. Um, and then, you know, the law of attraction is not a real law. There's your mind. There, The mind is powerful, and the mind can help with positive thinking, um, and it can help us achieve things. And to some extent, that's just common sense. But you can't conjure a parking space with your mind, and you can't conjure a house with your mind. Um, and they weren't, they never made any attempt to really explain how it worked. So they were just asking for a lot of belief, uh, without offering a lot of evidence as to how this thing might work. Yeah. I think as an author, I resented it because it was so incredibly successful, 
based on giving so little information. I mean, it just seemed like, you know, I, I write books that are they're not yeah. exactly self-help books, but they're kind of guides and in encouraging people and giving people skills to, to be better dads in this particular case. But it's like, yeah. I think I'm doing something that has some meaning. And then you're writing a book about, say, hey, I want some money and it'll show up and, and you're going to make millions of dollars selling. It just doesn't seem fair. <laughs> well, it's definitely not fair. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's why it's so successful. You know, the fact that it's just so general and it's so wish fulfillment based. You know, a lot of people who buy self-help books, they don't want to work. You know, they don't want to do the work um, to make their relationships better, to make their lives better. They just want to wish for something and have it magically appear. So, you know, it just appeals to them to hear that. And I think that we really readily buy into things that we want to be true, even if our common sense tells us that it's probably not true. Jessica Lamb Shapiro is the author of Promise Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jessica. McGruff the crime dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Books them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? Do you have these in a seven and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone? Does it come in blue? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life. Is it raining out? Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met before? What's my account balance? Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions? Um, no. We clam up. Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? When do I get my results? Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. My name is Rachel, and in eight years, I'll be an alcoholic. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. I'll start drinking in middle school, and I'll do some things I don't really want to do. So by the time my parents talk to me about it, Alcohol won't be my only problem. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with Jessica Lamb Shapiro, who's the author of Promised Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. And I'm wondering whether... So you went to a whole bunch of different meetings and organizations and, and had a chance to to sit through a lot, a lot of stuff. Did you bump into the same people in various places? I'm kind of wondering whether there's like self-help groupies who, who just go to one after the other after the other. Um, there definitely are. I did not happen to bump into anyone because I was trying to cast a pretty wide net. And I think that people tend to go to certain kinds of workshops over and over. Um, but it definitely seemed like some of the people who were in the rules class that I went to had been there before. They definitely knew each other. Um, so I, it definitely seems like they're sort of groupies or junkies or whatever you want to call them. 
Yeah, I was wondering if, if, if they're looking for a particular thing, are they, what, what is it that they're looking for if they keep going to these things? Because I, I mean, guess by, you know, if they keep going, to, if they go to the second one or the third one, it sort of by definition says that the first one didn't work. Well, that, that is true. I had this theory that it's totally unsubstantiated, but that maybe it was like going to church and, you know, it's just people wanted to be around other people who were kind of searching for similar things. And even if they weren't getting it, it was just about being with other people and having a community because I think a lot of people are pretty isolated now. Um, I have no proof that that's true, but that was one of my theories. Okay. All right. So tell us about about some of the specifics. You talked about walking on hot coals. I've always wanted to do that, I think. Really? Well, I, it just seemed like something that would be kind of a, a, an accomplishment. I don't know. What, what what was it like for you? Maybe was, you'll talk me out I was it. terrified. I was so scared. And it was funny because earlier in the day, I had done a bunch of research, and I had learned from my research that it's really unlikely that you'll get burned walking on hot coals because it works because of physics. Um, basically, the ash around the coal is insulating. And it's not, they tell you that it's about having an intention in your mind. You know, if you believe you won't get burned, then you won't get burned. But you basically won't get burned because it's very hard to get burned. If you stood in one place. You keep moving, yeah. If you keep yeah. moving and you're going at a good pace, then you're probably not going to get burned. Um, so even though I knew this, and I do trust in science, once I got there and I saw they make this big bonfire and it's just a huge hot fire. <laughs> And then it, the darkness descends and the coals start glowing and it just looks wrong. And you're barefoot and you just think, or I just thought, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> you're going to get burned. So it was an interesting experience because even though I knew that chances were I was going to be fine, it still required a lot of bravery for me to do it because I just was so on some animal level very terrified um, and I did feel pretty good afterwards uh, because I had sort of pushed through that fear and nothing happened. I mean, it's not even that hot. It sort of felt like it was just warm, really. Would you do it if it was uh, walking across ground up or not ground up, but broken glass, which is something else that you see people do sometimes? That one seems to be more challenging of the laws of physics. Yeah, I would not do that. <laughs> I really like my feet not cut up and bleeding. Um, if I somehow found out that there was some scientific reason that I wasn't going to do it, then I might be able to mentally get over it. But yeah, no, I would not go in for anything where my feet would probably get cut. So what was one of the ones that you went to? You talked about uh, overcoming phobias and fears. Mm -hmm. Did you see some transformation in, in any of the, the groups that you went to over, over time that you saw somebody walk in and you think, oh, that, that person looks sad or distraught or something, and then at the end you see that that, that person has somehow made a, a transition or improved or something? Well, definitely the, the fear of flying um, class that I went to, that met over six weeks, and I think that repeatedly meeting over time helps more than just going to something once. Um, we actually met at the, at the airport, so we would all talk about why planes were safe and our fears. And then we would get on a stationary plane after the class for about 10 minutes. And the first class, I mean, everybody was a nervous wreck. I was a nervous wreck because I'm terrified of flying. I mean, you could just see in people's faces, blood had drained, they were shaking. Some of them were crying before we even got on the plane. Oh, this is a plane that's not going to be going anywhere. This is a plane that's not going anywhere. 
<laughs> so it's like the totally coals. So. Stationary plane. But this was the extent of people's fear, and I really understood it because I had it myself. And then after doing this six times, you really do get desensitized. You know, the sort of basis is the cognitive behavioral therapy, where if you do something enough times, you just get desensitized to it. And you could just see that showing up at the class, people were relaxed, they were laughing, they were joking. We'd get on the plane, it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, so that was a really amazing transformation to witness over, you know, six weeks is not a really long time, um, but it was enough. Did you change your ideas about flying or your fears about flying after that? Yeah, I did, actually. Um, a lot of it was getting information. Um, so once I learned kind of how planes work and why my fears weren't rational, um, that really helped me get over it. Um, but to some extent, I just needed to get on that plane six times, and then I did do a short flight. Um, and then I didn't fly for a few years, but then I just flew to Paris with my dad, and I actually had no trouble at all. What is the cult of expertise? Uh, the cult of expertise, when you're talking about self-help, um, is kind of non-existent. I mean, it's basically this idea that we think people are experts when they write a book. Um, and sometimes they are. Sometimes they've gone to school. Sometimes they've been thinking about something for 20 years, but sometimes they haven't. Sometimes they just got an idea, and they just wrote a book, and now they're calling themselves an expert. And there's a way in which the media is complicit in this um, because once they call someone an expert, they confer that further authority onto that person. Um, so I was really interested in looking at this idea of what makes an expert, if anything, and, you know, sort of what our, our ideas and our desires are around having experts. Why do we need them? And what did you decide? Um, you know, I think that there is such a thing as an educated person on a subject. Um, my dad's a child psychologist, and he can speak to issues involving children in psychology. Um, but in the case that I cite in the book, he became an expert on this thing called the choking game, which is a game that kids play with each other. Uh, when they cut off oxygen, uh, they get a little high, and some kids were dying. And my dad got called, and he was an expert on one show, and then all of a sudden he was the de facto expert. So because his name came up in Google searches with relation to this one show, every time somebody searched, they found him, and they were like, oh, he's the expert to the point where even friends of mine thought that my dad's training was in the choking game, which there's no such thing as training. I, actually, I shouldn't say that because I don't know that, but I'm pretty sure that there's no school where people can go and learn about the choking game. Um, so just watching that and kind of having that behind-the-scenes view of how my dad got turned into an expert on something that, you know, in a sense he was qualified to comment on because he does understand children and psychology, and in another sense he wasn't as qualified to talk about as the media was making it out to seem. But it seemed like from the, the little bit of a dialogue that you have in the book mm -hmm. that he didn't really necessarily believe that it was a sex thing. Oh, no, it wasn't. He was right about that. I was wrong about that. Really? <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes. I... No, with children, it's not. They're oh, just okay. trying to get high. Okay. All right, because I... I seen enough of these things. Well, you, you, I saw, no, no, probably saw the, I same, the same SVU episode that <laughs> exactly, you saw. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, I think David Carradine, and there have been a number of famous people who have been found hanging. 
Yeah, because well, their I things guess the got a little out of control. Anytime you're self-asphyxiating, you can pass out and die, whether you're doing it for sexual reasons or you think it's fun. Would Again, you go back to any of these self-help things? Um, I would Explore absolutely go back to the fear of flying class if I needed it, and I would go again to the grief camp that I went to for kids. Um, I mean, I can't go as a camper because I'm not a kid anymore, um, but I would definitely go back and volunteer as an adult because I thought that was a really great organization. Jessica Lamb Shapiro is the author of Promise Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. Jessica, you have a website people can go to for more about this? Uh, yeah, promiselandbook.com. No D. Promiselandbook.com. Oh, great. Yeah. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Really fascinating book. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. More with Mr. Dad. Armin Brat after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. This heavyweight bout is about to begin. The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe, and the champ is wearing, uh, looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office. And from the back, we can... Ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the crazy getup? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases can be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. The champ's not wasting any time. It's over. This fight is over. Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to ahrq.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? ahrq.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to ahrq.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment, and I'm joined, as usual, by Samantha Fuse. Sam, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Have you been working out your your 60 minutes a day? You know, I actually have every day this week except for Friday because it was a half day for so my you, son at school. So yeah. you're you're actually doing that. That's that's the recommendations that people have the this the fitness experts and cardio experts say for for kids should be about an hour a day and for adults an hour a day wouldn't hurt but at least 30 so that you're doing well. We get all this exercise stuff coming in and wanted to talk about a couple of things that I think may actually be able to help folks out there and exercise themselves, but also get the family involved, which is why I I wanted to take a look at these things. And there are two things that are very similar. One's called the Fit Bug and one's called the Fitbit. So there's there's pictures of these things on the website at parentsatplay.com. You can find that on there if you look for Fitbug or Fitbit. The Fitbug, is it the watch or is it the, the, the pocket thing or is it the combination of the two? You know, it's an interesting thing. Both of them are, they're sort of roundish plastic things. I don't know what mm-hmm. you want to call them. And then they can go into a variety of different housings. There's, you, it goes into something that clips over your belt. It mm-hmm. goes into something that you can wear you can clip onto your underwear. It goes into something you can wear around your neck on a chain or on a watch band as well. So any of those things work very, very well. One of the big differences is the Fitbug doesn't have a display. It's a, such a, a weird thing. It's just an orb. They call it an orb. And it just has a light on it, a, a green light or a red light, depending on what's going on. And so the only way that you can really tell what's going on with what you're doing 
is by going online or onto the, the app, the, the smartphone app, or onto your computer, and then it tracks everything because it, it's Bluetoothing it all to where it's supposed to go. For beginning exercisers, I think it, both of those are pretty good things because they're going to keep track of your steps. They're going to keep track of roughly how much time you're, you're spending running or walking. It's able to tell the difference between those two things. But without the display, I found it a little bit... Uh, yeah, I don't think I would like it as much without the display. I like to be able to look at the, you know, even with just the treadmill that I'm running on, how far have I gone, what's my heart rate, how many calories have I burned, whatever. I like being able to see the visual whenever I feel like it. Yeah, and there was a watch that actually didn't make it into this review, but I'm going to put it into another review called the Basis, which is one of the coolest-looking watches you can imagine. It's just it's absolutely blank. There's nothing on it except for four tiny silver dots, one on each corner of the face. And so you touch one of those dots and it tells you the time, it tells you how many steps you've taken, it tells me your pulse. It's it's really very, very cool. And that thing is serious business fitness. That's not for your average beginner. It's going to keep track of how much time you're doing everything. It keeps track of how many times you get up a night. It keeps track of your, your pulse, your resting pulse. It's it's absolutely amazing. And I, I, I've been wearing that watch for quite a while. And the, the problem with that one is that there always has to be a problem with these things in some way, is that that watch, you have to charge it every couple of days. I mean, really and truly, every couple of days. You have to plug it in, and then it downloads its stuff to your computer. And sometimes you just don't remember to charge your watch every couple of days. It's not an intuitive thing. The back to the Fitbit and the Fitbug, those things last for six months. You don't have to put hmm. a battery in there at all. Uh, I'm I was very impressed with with those on I, I guess well all three of them to to different degrees. You can get reviews of that in a little bit more depth and a lot of other products at parentsatplay.com. For Samantha Fuse, I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.